Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, February 5th, 2019, is a Bonnie and Richard Reese lecture in Constitutional History and Law. In this talk, legal experts Amy Adler, Nadine Strawson, and Akil Redemar discuss the First Amendment and why this constitutional right has been subject to so much controversy and wide-ranging interpretation. Well, good evening. Thanks so much for coming. I am so excited to be with you and uh, two friends uh, that uh, I've been, we've been friends for a very long time. You're in for a great uh, event. Um, a little bit of bait and switch, perhaps. Um, you've, you've been told that this is actually uh, an event on the First Amendment. And we're actually going to be talking about free speech. You might think, well, that's the same thing. Not quite. Um, the First Amendment to the Constitution is both broader and narrower than the concept of free speech in ways we're going to discuss. Here's how it's broader. When you pull out, you know, we all have it with us, of course, our pocket constitutions, um, you, you will note that the First Amendment to the Constitution talks about not just freedom of speech, but freedom of the press, which is related, but uh, and maybe we'll talk about that a bit, but petition and assembly. We probably won't talk about those so much. The free exercise of religion, the, the uh, rule against um, uh, an establishment of religion. So we're probably not going to talk about all of those aspects of the First Amendment. We're going to talk about free speech, which is in the First Amendment. Um, um, but here's the way in which the free speech idea is way broader than the First Amendment, as will be reflected in our conversation. The First Amendment, when we read it, it says Congress shall make no law. Um, It's been judicially construed, and properly so, to apply to presidential efforts to censor and suppress, uh, to to state and local efforts, thanks to the later 14th Amendment, when a state or a city uh, tries to uh, prohibit or suppress freedom of speech, um, that's covered. But judicial also. Yes, thank you very much. Not just um, executive and legislative, but judicial as well. But we're going to talk about freedom of speech much more broadly. We're going to talk about um, private, uh, non-government. See, all of that still is governmental. State government, uh, local uh, government, uh, some branch of the federal government. And at some point, this idea, which is very important to lawyers, is called the state action doctrine, that some of our rights apply against the government. It's a very important concept because some of the very things that government can't do, as a general proposition, individuals have a right to do. The government can't have a religion, but Akhil Amar gets to have one. Um, The government, with your money, can't put up a billboard saying vote for Trump, but Akhil Amar, I suppose, could. He won't um, with his own money, but but the very thing that government can't do, sometimes individuals have an absolute right to do. Okay, but now how about Twitter and 
uh, and Facebook. We're going to talk about whether they should be treated like the government as monopolies or more like the New York Times and the, the National Review that should have their own ability to have their own uh, editorial content. So the concept of freedom of speech is narrower in some ways and broader in other ways. Now, with that, um, by, as way of background, here's how I want us to begin. I want us to begin with the concept, if there is one, of hate speech. Nadine, what is hate speech? And I love the way Akil uses the air quotes <laughs> all the way through my book. I put that term in quotation marks precisely to underscore the point that there is no legally accepted concept of hate speech, speech that has a hateful content and for that reason is excluded from First Amendment protection. To the contrary, the Supreme Court has repeatedly and unanimously refused to create an exception to First Amendment protection for speech that we usually designate when we use that term, namely speech that conveys hatred or discrimination or stereotyping on the basis of race, religion, gender, and other identity factors. Now, um, how should it be regulated, if at all? How is it regulated? Does the American approach differ from, let's say, the European approach? And then I'm going to get Amy. Okay, so I will add to your wonderful brief constitutional law lesson uh, two brief points about the First Amendment free speech protection. Uh, One is that government may never regulate speech because of disfavored content, no matter how loathed the viewpoint or message or idea of the speech may be, that is not a justification for suppressing it. If we hate the idea, we have to raise our own voices to refute it, to denounce it, and so forth. But when you get beyond content to look at context, speech with any message, including a hateful discriminatory message may, in a particular context, be punished. And the particular context is often described as an emergency, when the speech directly causes certain imminent serious harm. And the only way to prevent that harm is to suppress the speech. And much so-called hate speech does occur in context when it does satisfy that test and can and should be punished. For example, if it is what we lawyers call a true threat that where the speaker means to instill a reasonable fear of being subject to violence by the uh, the speaker intends to instill that fear in particular people to whom the speech is addressed. Another example is intentional incitement of imminent violence where the speaker intends to carry out that violence and the likelihood, or intends to incite that violence, and the likelihood is that it will actually be incited. So Nadine uh, elaborates some of these uh, ideas and more in this book, which, as you've heard, is available 
uh, for purchase after this event, and there's a book signing. This is unrehearsed, basically. I haven't asked. I know Amy has read the book. I actually haven't asked her if she agrees with Nadine's points about all this, if there's any disagreement at all. Um, and, and if there isn't, maybe, you, you know, if there is, great. And if not, tell us what your colleague um, at NYU, uh, Jeremy Waldron, would have to say about all of that. First, I have to say the book is spectacular. And I think it should be required reading on campuses in particular, where so many of these controversies about hate speech are unfolding. And we're going to talk about campus speech, yeah. public and private um, campuses, um, before we finish. Yeah, and, and one of the things that it does is really offer a full-throated defense of why, even acknowledging all the harms connected with hate speech, why we should nonetheless protect it under the First Amendment. I think if I could maybe connect what Nadine's writing about with where you began us, Akhil, uh, there's a funny way in which a lot, I, I realized in reading it and this defense of the First Amendment, I began to think about actually Tim Wu's recent work on First mm-hmm. Amendment law in which he asks, is the First Amendment obsolete? Mm-hmm. And that's because, although it is the case that mm-hmm. the government has fashioned these extraordinary protections for, um, in most cases, mm-hmm. what, what colloquially we, we might call hate speech, and that really, um, <coughs> it, it, this really began, I should just say, because we're at the New York Historical Society, I, yeah. I should talk about the history of the incredible protection. Oh, my mic's not working. Is this okay? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, so the history of the First Amendment was really born um, during a very specific historical moment that maybe is... Um, so different from our current one that that we ought to rethink certain assumptions. So so it was born really during World War I and leading up through those years and these heroic uh, dissents by Justice Brandeis and uh, Justice Holmes by, at the district court level, learned hand in an extraordinary case, protecting dissidents who were criticizing the government against punishment for for speaking out. And early cases were about speaking out against the war. Um, The war being World War I. World War I, yeah. But what's interesting now is um, is that if you think about the marketplace of ideas, which is what the First Amendment is designed to protect, and political self-government, which is what the First Amendment is designed to protect, then the fact that the First Amendment offers this high protection to all kinds of speech, including Mm -hmm. hate speech, doesn't really address what I think are major problems right now in the marketplace of ideas and in our political economy. And these are caused by... uh, the, the limits that Akhil was, was talking about, where the, where the First Amendment really only inhibits the government from shutting down speakers, but doesn't talk about the way that, for example, Facebook mm-hmm. has, um, I think, really fractured our, our environment and the way social media and the way we consume news mm-hmm. through social media presents a whole different set of challenges about which the First Amendment has surprisingly little to say. 
If I can just chime in, uh, even though these private sector companies are not bound by the First Amendment uh, and they have their own First Amendment rights, right, to uh, assuming that we treat them as publishers uh, along with the New York Times, traditional media, social media, should be able to choose what views to air and what views not to air. But if you look at the practical consequences of how they are exercising that power, it is really terrifying. The numbers are such that in one month alone, at the time that I wrote my book, which is already two years ago, Facebook alone said that it was taking down, looking at hate speech alone, almost 300,000 messages per month. So that's really more than all of the sensorial power of government around the world throughout history. And uh, that's why my book actually went beyond the First Amendment. I argue that the same principles that are reflected in First Amendment law should have universal resonance first in other countries that don't have our constitutional tradition, and also in the private sector where real power uh, to suppress speech or to further it is being exercised. So, and and I, yeah. I just want to jump in on that yeah. because I think Nadine's book does this magnificent job of really setting forth this sensorial power that Facebook exercises in the absence of any First Amendment review. But one of the problems Facebook presents is one that the First Amendment has even less to say about it. It's not just that Facebook is shutting down speech and, mm -hmm. and silencing mm -hmm. speakers. It's also that Facebook has created a new information ecosystem mm -hmm. um, in which now um, my students certainly get their news from Facebook and from other social media realms. They're living in a filter bubble mm -hmm. where they're overwhelmed. They're flooded with speech. It's no longer this scarcity of speech. Oh my God, something might be shut down. But rather... How do you manage the information flood that you receive every day? How do you distinguish between real news and fake news? How do you stay out of, um, how do you stay informed? And, and how do we have an informed citizenry when you're reading um, the, this, uh, and the algorithms are designed to constantly reinforce your pre-existing points of view? So these are concerns that, go beyond this traditional model of censorship, mm -hmm. even if we were to extend it mm -hmm. to Facebook, mm -hmm. and, and present new problems, again, that, that First Amendment law has not had much to say about. Exactly. But even when the First Amendment is not available as a tool to foster free speech and other positive goals, we have other legal tools that are available. Uh, many years ago, I remember giving a talk at uh, Columbia University, which is where my husband teaches and just down the street from where I live. And I was then the president of the ACLU. And students were so surprised to learn that they had no constitutional rights uh, of free speech vis-a-vis -vis their university. And I went on to explain, well, there are other sources of rights. For example, universities often make pledges to uh, students 
students that they're recruiting and faculty that they're recruiting that they will voluntarily uh, protect free speech and academic freedom principles, and that can give right to a, rise to a contractual right. There can be regulations. Some states have passed laws that protect student free speech rights on private campuses and so forth. But the next day, my husband brought home the copy of the Columbia Spectator, and I was so horrified that the headline said, ACLU president says students have no free speech rights. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about campuses, um, which is, you know, because we're all familiar with, um, with them, and they're not all governed as you properly told the students by the First Amendment, because Columbia's private, Yale is private. Um, uh, now, um, what about uh, the critique that, there, um, that there's a political correctness, self-censorship, student oversensitivity, um, administrative and bureaucratic overreach? Are these actually, in, you know, your experiences real concerns, or are they just um, right-wing um, uh, bugaboos? Well, you're looking at me first, and I do uh, speak on campuses all over the country. You do, what, a couple hundred, 300 things a year? Probably, and Three, I also... In a year, entirely. 300 things, 250 <laughs> things, and, and more than half of them on campus, or...? Oh, oh yeah, m- almost all. I mean, I would say several hundred on campus alone, and I start every day by reading Inside Higher Education, and the Chronicle of Higher Education, because this is such a focus of free speech and other civil liberties and human rights controversies. And I'm of two minds. On the one hand, surveys and anecdotal experience consistently show a um, sobering support among students and even faculty members to suppress and punish speech that they consider offensive. And at the height of speech that they consider offensive, and I think this reflects very well on their values, is speech that is demeaning or degrading on the basis of race, gender, religion, and so forth. So, uh, And there was a recent survey that just came out last week from FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, that affirmed that. Now, on the positive side, uh, surveys also show that today's students are uh, record-breaking in their support for human rights, equality, dignity. Uh, having been a student a- activist on campus in the late 60s and early 70s, I am thrilled to see the resurgence of student activism in support of racial justice and against sexual violence and for immigrants' rights and LGBT rights. So I always believe in looking at the positive. That is really to be celebrated. And the reason I wrote my book is to hope to persuade these wonderful social justice warriors, and to me that's a compliment. It is not a derogatory term. Uh, I'm proud to call myself one and to welcome a younger generation of them. And I want to persuade them that censorship is actually antithetical to those causes that they champion. And I'm very happy that uh, I have gotten feedback from people who have read my book and said that it changed their minds. Now, while I am troubled about the dismaying percentages of people on campus who think that hate speech should be censored, it's always been that way, Akhil, certainly throughout my adult lifetime. I graduated from law school in 1975. Two years later, the ACLU handled what is still our most famous or 
infamous case, the so-called Skokie case, in which we were defending free speech rights for hate speech being expressed by neo-Nazis who were demonstrating in Skokie, Illinois, a town near Chicago that had not only a large Jewish population, but a large percentage of those Jewish inhabitants were Holocaust survivors or closely related to Holocaust survivors. And even the card-carrying members of the ACLU, who were not college students by and large, right? Mostly older folks joined the organization. We lost 15% of our card-carrying stalwart free speech members. So to me, that shows that hate speech has always been controversial, and it's very counterintuitive. So it takes why we should defend it even if we oppose, indeed, I would say, especially if we oppose the message. So I really think that today's times are presenting no different challenges from the past. Now, the Holocaust, though, is so singular. You actually tell, I think, at the very beginning, a very personal story about your, your dad. And Amy, I think when you and I were just talking offline, we may have a, a slightly more pessimistic sense that the students are becoming sort of more self-censoring and intolerant than, self-censoring, was, yeah. that was, yeah, than yeah. was once true. I think, I think that's absolutely my experience in teaching mm-hmm. that I've seen over the course of certainly the last decade, a big shift in how in students uh, being worried about what they're saying in class in my being worried about what I say in class, in my colleagues and I sort of having conversations, sort of secret conversations, let's not say this too loud, um, in exchanging academic ideas. And I think this once again goes to this, uh, uh, the sort of irrelevance of the First Amendment, because absolutely there's a First Amendment right to offend people on if you're having you know deep debates about race or about gender which often come up in my classroom um, but the problem is that there's a possibility now of sensorial forces um, by by really by mobs even and I'm not, I don't mean just on the PC side I think this can happen you know against right-wing speech it's not it's not just one side or the other but in the campus environment we see more of a, a possibility of a PC mob where you can be um, quite harmed in multiple ways without any government involvement if you say the wrong thing and if you um, if you cause offense and I think this is of great concern, and this is part of why I do want everyone to read Nadine's book, because because she is trying to show that there can be uh, the social justice that's always been part of the left and and, um, animated student politics. Um, There's been this shift against free speech on the left that's very mysterious. There's been a a flip in in the politics of free speech. Now now it's um, the darling of the right wing and um, considered suspect by the left. And I think, I think Nadine's book is a, is a good answer to that. But I was actually curious, uh, Akhil, if you're experiencing this too, because in our little conversation, um, I got the sense that you do feel there's been a change on campus. And Yale has gotten a lot of publicity for certain uh, incidents, at least at the undergraduate level. Yeah, and I do a lot of um, outreach to alums. Um, and... 
I would go around the country and they'd ask me about political correctness. And I used to say, oh, you know, I think that's overblown, the concern. Um, and, and then I actually saw the video that they had all seen that went viral um, with kind of students shouting down, I think, um, uh, 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 the head of one of the residential colleges. His name is Chris, Nick Christakos. I, I would say in an intolerant way, he was trying to embody ACLU-like virtues of sweet reason and discourse, and let's actually discuss this thing calmly. It was about... Um, and he showed real respect toward the students. Oh, I, and they showed the opposite toward the You know, I would have lost it. Um, uh, and, and he, I thought, was you know, just modeling Asian. for them. Uh, uh, and this was in part, um, uh, just ripped from the headlines, about... Um, it was an early version of the blackface controversy about people for Halloween um, dressing up um, in uh, cross-racial ways and whether that's always offensive or, or not. So, so that was, it was a, a Halloween conversation about um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, dressing up as a Native American, as um, someone from uh, uh, another... Cultural um, appropriation is the term. Okay. Uh, and um, so I hadn't seen the video. And then I saw it and I said, ah, now I understand what they're worried about. Oh, and then I began to experience some of that um, uh, myself. Now, here's what's tricky, you see, because here's where we began. As a formal matter, we are worried about the government telling us, you know, what we can and can't say and think, but I told you, I'm allowed to have a religion, even though the government can't. I'm allowed to have a politics, but so are my students, exactly. and they're allowed to say, Amar, shut up. We don't want to listen to you. That's actually, you know, from one point of view, their free speech right. Exactly. But here's the complicating thing. When you actually have a larger culture, mm-hmm. it's not the government that's actually suppressing us. It's a culture that says, these things can't be said. Yeah. These things can't be thought, even in universities. Yeah. Um, when people are self-censoring with their own information feeds on Twitter, they're not actually being open to other ideas, and they're telling you, oh, don't challenge me, don't actually uh, complicate things. Um, now, here's... May I, may I say something? Yeah, but, but here's where this book... You see, we were just talking about it before. Okay, I forgot this. The great book of the last century about all this, a very famous book by John Stuart Mill, is called On Liberty... And actually, when you read it, we were just talking about this backstage, it's not just about the threat to liberty posed by government. John Stuart Mill is actually talking about the threat to to liberty, to free thinking posed by a certain kind of culture that's too quick to shut down provocative ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what we're talking about here. We're actually talking about a threat created by culture. Oh, you can't say that, Professor. Um, um, uh, um, So, anyway. And and surveys do show that faculty members and students say, and this is a phrase that comes up all the time, they are walking on eggshells. And the sad thing is that it stifles candid discussion and in some cases stifles any discussion especially about those sensitive and 
urgently important topics that we need to grapple with as individuals and a society, namely issues of race and gender. I saw something today in the Chronicle of Higher Education or Inside Higher Ed um, where um, the governor of Virginia was being lambasted for his expression, uh, admittedly uh, very uh, offensive and showing lack of judgment when he was a student. And one of the critics, I thought it was so ironic, said, you know, she was saying he ought to be punished, he ought to resign, he ought to, you know, have his political career ended. And then she said, because it is so important that we have frank discussions about this subject. (laughs) So let me me, um, um, uh, say what I actually am a little afraid to say in a class, but... um, uh, so you better be. You are. You might. You're probably being videotaped, so it might get to your class. <laughs> so I'll try to to say it in a, a, a proper and measured way. For me, here's what's really distinctively problematic about Virginia. The Klan is no laughing matter. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so this. But but now is all blackface. Now, and maybe blackface is different from everything else. It has a certain horrible history, but. I'm going to go there because I'm, and I'm going to go there in part because I'm neither black nor white, and that gives me a certain freedom in this conversation. <laughs> the most, maybe the most important book that I read as a youngster, it just changed my life. It's actually about blackface. It's a book called Black Like Me by John Howard Griffith. Mm-hmm. Um, so is all blackface minstrelsy and, and, and mimicry and mockery, or actually can it be something really serious? Here's what I would want to tell my students and not, because I resisted this cultural appropriation meme, is every effort to actually um, portray someone um, of a different um, race, is that mockery? Is then a Lin-Manuel Miranda wrong to have black people play white people? Um, um, when I'm a kid, in, on Halloween, there were some years when I was... Um, an Indian, mm-hmm. American Indian with a feather, but I don't think I was mocking that. Yeah. I was like imagining, what would it be like to walk around in someone else's moccasin, so to speak? Right. There were other years when I was a, a cowboy, presumably white. <laughs> there were other years when I was an Indian Indian where I, you know, I had a little term. I actually thought, hmm, you know, is, is it always mockery to try to... Now, if I, if, if I said even that, I actually am worried right. in a current environment, I wouldn't have even been able to get all of that out exactly. before mm-hmm. people would have just started hooting and hollering. And that's not because the government is doing anything. Yale is a private university, right. and we're talking about student culture that I think is too narrow. And, it's an, and the student culture, the, the power of student culture is enabled by social media. Correct. Yes. So that this is another key change that social media has ushered in because yes. if, if students were just yelling at, I can't yes. remember the name of the, the professor at Yale. Yeah, Chris, Chris Dacus. Right. If students were just yelling at him on campus in a, in, a, in a way that maybe became public at Yale, that would be one thing. But because this has gone viral uh, and it has seriously damaged, from what I understand, his personal life, his professional life, his wife, um, mm. who was also involved in it, has, has been 
um, extremely harmed, and so it's that. And he's a and very it, distinguished scholar. He, he's he's the Ster, he's a Sterling professor and it at has Yale. Had an enormous Amazing. chilling effect on all the rest of us, as as we know. Yes, and so this is this is the changed environment where where really it's become. And I and I say it as a mob. I again don't want to just single out PC censorship for this because I do think there are mobs. Um, there are going in every direction, in, including but, on campus. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. I just read one example today and. African-American professor at a Southern university uh, who used some violent language about whites. He said, uh, if we're ever to have meaningful racial justice, some whites are going to have to lose their lives. Now, after the fact, he explained that he was talking about people like the heroic civil rights workers from New York who got killed during voter registration. But anyway, there there were mobs of right-wing people who they have no hesitation of abandoning free speech when they don't like um, the, what they see as um, you know, anti-conservative treasonous so, so since we're talking about Twitter, since you asked me personally, um, if you just put my name in Twitter, I don't do Twitter, here are two of the, like, the top six feeds. So um, the, the most recent one is that apparently um, I'm a Muslim socialist. Um, which is very interesting to me because, and it would be to my pastor actually, because because I, 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 you know, I'm actually um, an, um, uh, a Christian, um, and I'm a so, and I actually really don't like socialists. I have a right to be a socialist if I want, or to be a Muslim or not. So that's that's the, t- the top one. Muslim-inspired socialist movement underway to eliminate the electoral college. Um, and it's an attack on yeah, my brother. So I actually just uh, e- emailed him uh, this morning saying, like, who knew? You know? Uh, um, so, but then f- six down from that, oh, all sorts of folks on the left attacking me because I testified on behalf of Brett Kavanaugh. So yeah. Twitter mobs, yeah. fake news, you know, just they, they don't know what they're talking about. But the power of people, you know, on Twitter to create um, the, a false perception of something. Um, so truth, you know, a, a lie is halfway around the world while truth is still getting its boots on. But it is also much easier technologically to correct the yes. lie and to correct. present information. I, I have great, okay, I was going to say I have great faith in education there, the critiques that we are making have been made very eloquently and very forcefully by people and government officials and educators all across this country. There are enormous efforts that are underway, financed by foundations and other institutions for how do we counteract these problems? How do we start educating at the earliest ages uh, to make uh, kids and adults, for that matter, media literate, savvy, have the appropriate skepticism, uh, take proactive steps to uh, find out and evaluate and be able to uh, find reliable sources to do their own research, to exchange ideas with people with different views. And I have to say, in my own anecdotal experience, there is such the pendulum swings, right? Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that um, the emblem for our country should not be the eagle, it should be the pendulum. And there has the pendulum definitely has swung too much toward self-censorship, but there is so much pushback. And the pushback is coming at all levels of civil society, which I think is really wonderful. And there's so many initiatives that are taking place on campus, started by students themselves, 
So I have uh, great confidence that it's an enormous problem, but I think that we are facing it in a constructive way. I'm going to just be the voice of pessimism again. I prefer Nadine's optimism, I think. But, you know, I'm just thinking about, about, let's say that you cared deeply, that you didn't want to be known as either a Muslim or a socialist. It's not so clear to me that counter-speech is ever going to correct that. that and, and, I did, and I didn't want to uh, do the Muslim thing because I have nothing against people. Right. So, so I, it was just very awkward to, to deny it as if it were an insult. It just happens not to be true. Yes. But, it's, 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 you know. but, but this is the information environment we're living in now where even if you did write something to disclaim it, because we're, we're so flooded with information and our consumption is often not particularly deep, a lot of people who Google you will come away thinking that you're a Muslim socialist, maybe forever. And obviously someone who digs deeper could find it and find your disclaimer and so forth. But this is a distortion, I think, of the marketplace of ideas that's caused by too much information and our inability to discern true from fake. And this is, this is a creature of, uh, of the digital age. Well, we're going to get to questions okay. in just a bit. I do want to have at least yeah. one other topic yeah. that we haven't talked about, which is sex yeah. um, and, 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 and sex speech um, and, and uh, more, more generally. But, but on just this one, I want to ask each of you. So I tell my students, every one of you every day, because um, uh, you see... This, this is a problem created by freedom. We have more access to information than ever before. 30 years ago, there were only three networks. They had monopolies. Walter Cronkite told us that's the way it is, and that's the way it was. For, and we were at least, on the one hand, we were at least all on the same page. We were getting the same information flow, but only because, actually, um, uh, our, our choices were so constricted. Because we have so much freedom, we can choose to self-censor or not. So I tell my students every day I check out Fox and the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. And you should do something similar. Every day um, you should see, and it's very interesting, are they covering the same stories or different stories, and from the same angle or different angles. I just want to know before we talk, because um, I do want to talk about um, sex and hate speech and pornography and, and all the rest and the First Amendment, um, wh- what do you personally try to do to avoid this informational bubble problem? Well, I um, read the sources that are very specific to the topics that I'm interested in. So, as I say, if I want to know what's going on on campus, I read not one but two uh, publications that have different perspectives. And I subscribe to a lot of newsletters from free speech organizations uh, and civil liberties and human rights organizations whose research I trust. I have to say that, so I'm really going to spending much more time on specialized sources staffed by experts whose expertise and judgment I have some basis for believing. For a while, the New York Times was doing, I'm not sure if it still is, uh, whenever there was a hot topic, it wasn't every day, uh, but they would present an array of perspectives from other publications on that issue. So here are two of the best essays we think from the left, two of the best from the middle, two of the best from the right. And I found that uh, very positive as well. I'm, I'm probably not doing enough, and I definitely live, because I most of my uh, social media friends and people I talk to are coming from the uh, legal, uh, legal academia, 
it's a very liberal bubble that I live in. I try to correct for it by seeking out actually colleagues of mine who are conservative, those few colleagues who are, um, and trying to read. Um, it, I actually try to read some right-wing blogs as well to really see the kind of rhetoric that I'm missing because I'm inundated with rhetoric from the left. And then basically I wake up every morning and see like my social media feed is like, you know, it's the end of the world, Donald Trump is president, and by the end of the day, it's complete apocalypse. I mean, you can, you can just see the level of anxiety um, reproducing itself. So I do try to seek out right-wing sources. But I'm sure I'm less informed than I should be. So I'll actually just make the pitch. I am not a Fox person, and I look at Fox every day. Um, and, and to those of you who don't, I would say you should do that. And to those of you who do, we'll say, I would say check out the WashPo and the New York Times every day if you're just actually, uh, or MSNBC, um, if you're just watching um, the Tucker Carlson show. Um, um, so, and, and this is our choice. We, we, the government can't make us do this. But if we don't do this, we actually really won't understand where our fellow citizens almost literally are coming from. And more and more, one of the initiatives that I've seen, not only on campus but in communities at large, is people getting together to talk to each other over dinner or over coffee. Um, there's, there are a number of organizations that have organized these conversations. Uh, one is called Bridge, and that was started on many campuses. Students deliberately seeking out other students and faculty members to talk about, and they have an agreement. We're not going to attack each other as ists and obes uh, because we disagree with our perspectives. Um, Akil and I are both speaking, have both spoken at a library program around the country, and they're having something called Breaking Bread, where just members of the community across the political spectrum are getting together to, uh, to share ideas. So we're going to bring in the, these um, questions, excellent questions, um, and, and more fully in just a minute. But, but actually, one of them really connects to the last topic I, I, I wanted to, to cover, um, uh, which is um, uh, speech and sex and, and First Amendment issues around sex um, here's the question. Do you have an example of what you personally, when you personally believe the First Amendment was interpreted too broadly? So let me, let me put it this way. Did the framers of the First Amendment, were they really thinking about um, deep throat or, be, you know, or um, behind the green door I'm dating myself or, as Amy will tell us about, Pornhub? Is that really what the, the Constitution is all about? And for some of the people who don't even know what Pornhub is, Amy, why don't you tell them? <laughs> um, happy to do that. No, I mean, I think it's very interesting because this is an area in which my views about the First Amendment have shifted just as the court has. So there was uh, this... How many people have heard of Pornhub? But just by the way, raise your hands. Okay. And how many people okay, have not... Okay, <laughs> they're liars. No, no, no. Okay, so, <laughs> no. so, so basically, um, after after having um, had a significant problem of censorship in this country over the years, including uh, the banning of great books like Ulysses and Lady Chatterley's Lover, we have, um, thanks to not just Supreme Court jurisprudence but decisions by the Department of Justice, reached a point where there is 
basically no, for practical effects, no enforcement of obscenity law. Anything goes, and that might explain the environment that you uh, you see or don't see. But what's happened is just as the Supreme Court and, and um, the government abdicated any enforcement of obscenity law, um, the the... Uh, the mechanics of porn really changed, and it started in 2007 with Pornhub and other sites. So it used to be that to get pornography, you actually had to, you know, you had to take a little bit of a risk to expose yourself. You, you had to go to a movie theater or to a bookstore or subscribe to a magazine, or even with pay-per-view, you had to give your credit card. Thanks to Pornhub, which uh, has uses the YouTube model of user-uploaded content, now porn is free. And it's this is high-definition streaming porn, always available, always available to anyone who has a smartphone, which has made it, in effect, sex education for, for kids, um, certainly in the absence of that. And the, the numbers of people using Pornhub are really astonishing. I think it's 81 million people a day are visiting Pornhub, 50,000 searches a minute performed on Pornhub. This is a huge part of our culture, and I think it's having a reach throughout many aspects of our culture that um, that have made me start to wonder, and I, I can't endorse censorship anymore, but has have made me start to wonder about the Supreme Court and, and the government's decision to completely abdicate the field in this area. Now, Nadine, you were one of the early and very brave voices um, uh, for very broad protection of um, speech, even erotic speech. Mm. And you were on the other side of a debate with Catherine McKinnon. Maybe tell us a little bit about your involvement in all of that and if your views have changed at all, if they have. Uh, so be- starting in the late 1980s, there was a serious split within the feminist movement. All of us deeply committed to promoting equality for women, opposing violence and discrimination against women, but a deep disagreement about the extent to which uh, pornography, I'm going to put that in quotes, I'll say a word about it in a minute, to the extent to which pornography should be blamed for causing discrimination and violence against women, and therefore the extent to which censoring pornography would be required in order to bring about feminist goals. The reason I put that term in quotes is, again, like hate speech is not a legally recognized term, the vast, vast, vast majority of sexual expression, including what most of us call pornography, which is used to describe anything that is intended to or has the effect of being sexually arousing, that is all constitutionally protected. Even when the Supreme Court enforced an exception, it was the so-called obscenity exception that does have a specific legal definition. Uh, If that definition is satisfied, the material is completely unprotected under the First Amendment, but it is a relatively narrow category. Among other requirements, it has to be lacking serious literary, artistic, political, and scientific value. And I think what might make it really hard, and I should say, um, and it's judged by local community standards, one of the other requirements is that it has to be patently offensive 
according to local community standards. And many years ago, in the early 90s, a federal judge in New York said that nothing could be obscene in New York because we didn't consider anything patently offensive. And, you know, I find there's something positive about that tolerance. Um, now, you know, just my, uh, my, I, I, my writing and advocacy about pornography is completely the same as about hate speech. Pornography, so some feminists, including Catherine McKinnon, use that term to describe a new category of sexual expression that they thought should be unprotected, and that was uh, sexually explicit expression that is demeaning or degrading to women or on the basis of gender. So it's a specific type of hate speech. And um, I helped to found an organization called Feminists for free expression. We didn't want to be against something. We wanted to be for it. And our view was that well-intended as uh, the McKinnon sensorial approach might be, it actually did more harm than good to women's rights because the concept of demeaning and disparaging is so subjective that what is targeted is expression about reproductive freedom, about women's equality, about women's safety. Indeed, some of the works of McKinnon and her colleague Andrea Dworkin were themselves censored in Canada when Canada adopted the law that they advocated. So maybe one word, give them one word about Margaret Sanger, and then I'll say a little bit about what's so great about how anything goes in New York and how that connects to the history of the First Amendment. But, well, but Mar- tell them about yeah, Margaret do, Sanger. Well, well yeah. it, I mean, Mar- the story of Margaret Sanger illustrates one of the problems of enforcing laws like this. Margaret Sanger, in her advocacy for birth control for women, uh, was prosecuted under obscenity laws. So certainly the history of obscenity is one that we should not um, return to. It can be used in, in very repressive ways. But I, I inv- uh, well, I don't know if I should do this. I invite you to take a look at Pornhub and tell me whether you think, whether you think the marketplace of ideas is working so beautifully. <laughs> um, it's been said uh, by many, actually, experts that this can be quite addicting. So, I, you know, be careful. You know, um, no, no, no. Um, actually, they, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not making that up. So, um, since you mentioned New York... Um, and local standards, and this is the New York Historical Society. I'm going to take a couple of questions, but I think you deserve just a little bit of a history of this very special spot in the world um, and its connection to ideas of free speech. So even before the American Revolution, of course, the famous Zenger case right here in Manhattan was all about the ability of a local publisher to criticize the colonial governor. And a jury sided with that local publisher. Um, and, um, and so um, uh, there was more free speech in, the, uh, in Manhattan than really anywhere else in the British Empire, thanks to a local jury of New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. And th- that, that's before the American Revolution. Um, in 1730s. Um, fl- uh, fast forward, um, uh, Amy mentioned actually um, at the turn of the 20th century, 
these great cases, and, and Nadine mentioned Oliver Wendell Holmes and, um, and Louis Brandeis, but it was also mentioned the great learned hand, a federal district judge in Manhattan, and then later um, chief judge of the Second Circuit, headquartered here in New York, and, and a very famous case called The Masses, um, uh, very er- in the early 20th century, of, and that was when he was um, as a district judge, a very important early statement of free expression mm-hmm. principles, which would later become Supreme Court doctrine. Now flash forward just a little bit, and then we have the Warren Court Revolution. I would say if you, if you put a gun to my head and you said you have to pick one case that's the most important in the First Amendment tradition, I would say it's New York Times versus mm-hmm. Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, this a newspaper from this um, great me- metropolis that was um, basically that was threatened with economic uh, destruction because it ran stories about the civil rights movement in the South. The stories contained some very very minor inaccuracies, mm-hmm. and people in Alabama tried to basically bring lawsuits that were financially mm-hmm. ruinous. Um, and they said it was because of the slight factual mistakes, but really they just didn't want the New York Times covering the civil rights movement. That's 1964. Um, yes. Um, and I think that has to be very sobering when we think about should we censor fake news or fabrications yeah. because it's, that case explains why even grander lies than those that were involved in that case deserve to be protected because of the danger of too much self-censorship to avoid liability. And then six or seven years later, the Pentagon Papers case, once again about the New York Times, bring to a public attention things that the government didn't want us to know, and the Supreme Court siding with the New York Times, saying actually, ooh, if secrets are divulged, it's possible the government can prosecute after the fact, but government can't prevent the publication itself, a doctrine that we didn't talk about. We didn't talk a lot about freedom of the press as distinct from freedom of speech, but there's a doctrine called no prior restraint. The government can't basically, in general, prevent the publication, even if there could be punishment um, after the fact. And then, if we were just talking about um, sex speech, I would say... Um, Maplethorpe mm-hmm. is actually, and Stonewall, mm-hmm. really important um, mm-hmm. in thinking about um, erotic speech and artistic speech. And again, the Brooklyn that, Museum case. Th- that's yeah, the yeah. that's the story of New York. So, the, so since this is the New York Historical Society, we've talked a lot about topical issues ripped from the headlines. But this place has an amazing history. Um, you want to jump in, and then I'll go two questions. Let's yeah. let's go to questions. Okay, yeah. um, here's a hard one. Um, Can you give us an example of where either of you think the First Amendment is actually as currently um, uh, uh, um, articulated by the Supreme Court too broad, too protective? Campaign finance. I disagree with it. That will take a whole evening. I respectfully disagree. Next year in Jerusalem. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Okay. Um, um, And... uh, um, uh, Maybe the hardest question of all, I don't have the answer, but maybe it's, um, um, yeah. We, um, uh, okay, we talked a good game about Facebook. Can government really regulate what Facebook chooses to, you know, to include or, 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 or not include? Some people are making, I mean, people are now floating a lot of interesting ideas, one of which is that 
There should be various regulation of these companies. I would be very, um, have a lot of trepidations about government power to regulate content choices that are made by these publishers. In effect, I was very skeptical and actually opposed the FCC's enforcement of the so-called um, what was it called? The um, e- that equal fairness, fairness doctrine. Sorry, because it wasn't fair as it was actually enforced. And for me, there's kind of a question of whom do I distrust more: these powerful private sector entities or the government? That said, I'm married to an economist, and he and other economists are uh, advocating that we at least look at some antitrust or pro-competition a remedy that if these companies have sufficient power in the relevant market, then that power needs to be diffused so that at least we would have more choices. I'll just say I, I share your suspicion about a First Amendment angle, um, and I like that idea very much. I think that we, we have to take seriously that this is having a corrosive effect on our political self-government and on our marketplace of ideas, things that the First Amendment was designed to protect, and and some solution, maybe outside of, of First Amendment law, um, as, as Ellie was suggesting, mm-hmm. might be the way to go. Yeah. May I just make one other suggestion? A co- broad coalition of human rights and free speech organizations around the world, interestingly enough, because this is a universal problem, have endorsed something called the Santa Clara Principles that they're urging social media companies to voluntarily adopt, uh, and if not, maybe through force of government regulation, which are procedural in nature. So it wouldn't directly govern the content, but it would at least give you some procedural due process, which you don't have now. You don't know what their standards are. Uh, for taking something down or blocking a post. It would give you an opportunity to appeal uh, if you're blocked or taken down. Right now, that doesn't exist. So there would be some transparency, some notice, some fair procedure, and some accountability, none of which exist now. So this last question is actually a more legal one. I think it actually has a relatively precise answer, but and it takes us back where we began with hate and hate speech, and that, I think that's a good place on which to end because Nadine will be um, signing books and Akil um, will as well. after. Um, but I have nothing to say about hate <laughs> speech, really. But, but here's what's really important about Nadine's fundamental thesis. She does not deny, as some or want to, the harm of hate speech. She doesn't say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. She doesn't say that. She says, words can hurt and hurt deeply. She does not deny that at all. She does say that, in general, the best response to that harm is more speech and counter-speech and not government censorship and regulation and punishment. Um, Now, But she also acknowledges that there is a certain point when the law does and should intervene. Um, Certain kinds of hate speech of a certain sort can 
be prohibited because of the harm. And so the very specific question, you have an answer, and it's a legal question, is um, how do you measure the potential or intention to incite violence through speech? What is that point in law at which, because of the harm, it's actually okay to regulate according to you and the Supreme Court? So using that one example of uh, speech that would satisfy the contextual emergency principle intentional incitement of imminent violence where the violence is likely to occur. There was one Supreme Court case where, in my view, that standard was satisfied, although the case was decided on a different basis. Um, It was a case called Wisconsin versus Mitchell. It involved Todd Mitchell, a young African-American man, who, with a group of friends, had just watched the movie, so this is dating the case, uh, called Mississippi Burning, which showed the horrific violence in uh, the Mississippi during the Civil Rights Movement. And right after watching a scene where a young African-American boy is praying and he gets beaten up, Todd Mitchell says to his friends, do you feel all happed up to move on some white people. And they say yes, and then uh, uh, there's a young white boy across the street. Todd says, there's a white boy. Let's go get him. And they beat him into unconsciousness. Now, the case went off on another uh, theme, which is hate crime, so that's a subject for another day. But in my view, that would clearly satisfy the incitement standard. That said, I think we have. I don't think it's coincidence that it was an African American who was punished in that case, because we have all seen studies where the the drug laws and every kind of law seems to be disproportionately enforced against racial minorities. So, to me, that's another double-edged sword. If we are trying to use punishment of speech, give government discretion to punish speech with the hope of advancing equality, we have to be very concerned about handing an inevitably discretionary power to a criminal justice system that has shown itself not necessarily to be fair and unbiased on grounds of race. So we've come to the end of our hour. We're going to have to do it again, obviously, because we've only scratched the surface. Um, uh, special thanks to Rick Reese for, for, um, for this whole program. And would you please join me in thanking our, our, our panelists? Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.